Welcome, listeners, to Out of the Box with your host, Jonathan Russo. As usual, today we'll be continuing our series through the Marxist lens with Professor Clyde Barrow. Today, we're going to try and understand the overwhelming rise in conspiracy theories, false information, and the shattering of reality-based consensus. I've long been fascinated by the rise of conspiracy craziness. Way back in 2015, I wrote an article called The Digital Beer Hall about the rise of Fox News, comparing the network to the beer halls of Munich that gave Hitler his first platform. There used to be some zaniness in America's conspiracy theories, but within the last few years, it has turned deadly. For sure, Pizzagate and the violence that was planned there and the Michigan militia threatening the governor were harbingers of the riots of January 6th. Now, we have hundreds of thousands getting sick and dying because they believe the vaccines are part of a conspiracy to track them, magnetize them, or a dozen other absurd convictions about the vaccines. None of this seems useful to capitalist enterprise. All the intense political divisions seem to me to get in the way of a happy shopping trip to the mall, concentrating on enjoying your new car. If Americans keep tearing themselves apart, so many who believe in Trump will be reinstated in August, can they be thinking about a Disneyland vacation? So, as always, we're going to ask Professor Clyde Barrow to give us a Marxist viewpoint on capitalism and conspiracy theories. Is this a new way of thinking or has it always been with us? Are people this deluded in socialist countries? Is corporate America concerned this insanity will affect their profitability? How did one of the two political parties in America go down this route? Professor, walk us through this, please. Well, Jonathan, ever since you brought this up as a possible topic of discussion, I've been racking my brain trying to come up with an explanation. And I would say, yeah, this is definitely unique, though, though it's not unheard of. And I think there are probably a lot of different ways that, that we can cut into this, this item. I think one of the places that I would start is just to, to remember that since the early 1960s, the mass media has fundamentally transformed how we process and digest reality and how we perceive reality. And of course, it, it's no story to the old timers. You'll remember this first became apparent to us all in, in the Nixon-Kennedy U.S. presidential debate when Nixon shows up on television looking rather haggard with big, uh, you know, black under his eyes. Mm -hmm. and, and they did a poll and found that anybody who watched it on TV and saw the young, vigorous, dynamic John Kennedy on the visual images concluded that Kennedy had won the debate, mm -hmm. but that anybody who listened to it on the radio and had only listened to the words concluded that Nixon had won the debate. And really from that moment forward, I think, Politicians uh, came to understand that visual imagery overrides critical thinking and verbal communication, and it's all become about visual imagery and since that time even morphed into to memes, uh, right. which are very big on the right these days. So I think that's one place to start is to remember that very few of us actually have very much personal experience of this big, big thing we might call reality. Most of us live in a very small, confined space. We interact with very few people and it's the same people over and over. So our perceptions of the larger world come from the media, come from, from whether it's radio, television, the internet, or, or other things. 
And that, too, has changed. Listeners might want to reference Herbert Marcuse in this. I think uh, I was very influenced by him in college. Uh, What he wrote, The Media is the Message, and several mm -hmm. other books on the theory of uh, how the media was affecting our reality and shaping our reality. I just want to reference that uh, as an aside because he was really a brilliant thinker. Yeah, and one of the things that's changed since then is is remember, say, when you and I were 12 years old, there were two networks, Yep. right? You turned on your television, you had your chant choice between uh, Walter, Walter Cronkite, Cronkite and Dan Rabbit. Right. <laughs> and that meant that everybody in the country shared a certain reference point for what was reality. Since that time, we all now, I mean, I can't keep count anymore. There's something like 2,500 channels on my television set. There's the internet, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, there's all these other different things out there. And one of the things that people have come to recognize now is the breakdown of that sort of collective communal consciousness. You can sort of winnow this down into narrow and narrower, smaller and smaller groups that we call echo chambers, where the only thing you ever hear repeated back to yourself is what you've said. You can block people on Twitter uh, people create their echo chamber. So you have people who share the same beliefs, talking to each other, revalidating each other. And the, the, the smaller those groups get, uh, the crazier they have the potential to get. And I'm going to reference a very non-Marxist person here who I think has a lot to say because say this stuff all seems kooky. But I don't know if you remember R.D. Lang, the existential well. psychoanalyst who studied schizophrenia. Very, very well. He, I was a big R.D. Lang fan. Uh, I believe his book, Knots, I read in college also, and he was very influential to me. I loved reading about him. Yes. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, that he did is he used to reproduce transcripts of conversations between schizophrenics. <laughs> and you would read it and you say, this is gibberish. This doesn't make any sense at all. How do they even talk to each other? They're like talking past each other. And then what he would do is just something very simple, say, no, there's an internal logic to this conversation. It's internally valid if you grant them the assumption that Winnie the Pooh is a communist or whatever it may be, <laughs> right? Whatever ridiculous, absurd thing it may be. If you grant them their first one or two assumptions about reality, that conversation makes sense to them. It's logical. It's coherent. Right. It's inter internally valid. And this is one of the things that, uh, you know, I think these echo chambers produce. The conversation makes sense on the inside. If you're part of the conversation and you share these basic assumptions of reality, no matter how crazy they may seem to us. And once you're inside that conversation, it becomes impenetrable from the outside. And one of the reasons for that is, is the distinction between, I would say, science and psychology. You know, in science, we, we take assumptions, we view them as hypotheses, and we look for evidence to falsify that hypothesis. We're looking to prove this wrong. That's what we do in all sciences. And we only hold to that assumption so long as it's not proven false. And when it's proven false, we reject it and move on to something else and we develop a, a different theory. Human beings, on the other hand, their brains are wired to work in exactly the opposite way. We look for things that prove what we already believe, and we ignore everything else. Right? We block it. We say it's not true. 
We put a, an epithet and an ad hominem on the person who said it. We have all kinds of ways of screening out reality uh, whenever that reality challenges our basic assumption. And so what we've seen in the United States and probably elsewhere by now is people sort of confining themselves, imprisoning themselves in smaller and smaller little silos where more and more extreme and preposterous views can grain credibility because there's nothing coming from the outside to challenge it. And, you know, the most extreme cases we've seen recently, you know, you may have seen there's more and more of these reports in the newspapers today of COVID deniers, people who didn't get the vaccine, recanting on their deathbeds and going, oh my God, if only I had got the vaccine. Well, it takes death to penetrate that bubble. Yes, there was a fascinating report uh, by somebody from the Washington Post who went to uh, some, you know, Republican county where this kind of denial was going on and death was death was haunting the place left and right. Hospital workers couldn't believe that people were coming in denying COVID, but they were dying. It was it was chilling. It was absolutely unbelievable, and they were defiant. Well, some of them were defiant into the end, but yeah. even when they died, they they said things like, "Well, okay, I'm I'm dying because God now is taking me." So there was no way out of this. You know, they, if they you know, if they if they if they died, religion then kicked in, which is not yep. not a rational proposition. God's will going to a better place. Yeah, so it all works out for the best in the long run. Yeah, and that's that's the internal okay. logic of these frameworks that it makes sense to them. Okay, may not to the rest of us, but it makes sense to them because that's their shared reality, uh, and that's that's become an increasingly prevalent problem in this country where. Uh, everybody's talking past each other and, and it lends itself to, to more and more just preposterous extremism uh, of this sort. But I do want to go back to another point you raised, and we've touched on this many times before. I, I've used this phrase. It comes from a, a French Marxist in the 1960s, Louis Althusser, called ideological overdetermination. It's a nice, fancy Marxist I love phrase. It. Uh, but basically what that phrase means is that you know, in Marxist social theory, there's basically three levels to, to a mode of production or to a society. There's the economic, the political, and the ideological level. And each one of those levels has a certain degree of relative autonomy in terms of how they develop. And at some points, Althusser's argument was that ideology becomes overdeterminative of what goes on in society. It, it essentially becomes detached from or gets ahead of economic and political reality. And I think there's a certain element to that. And we've talked about this with respect to conservative politicians who basically jettisoned their attachment to corporate America mm -hmm. in order to pursue these kinds of right wing conspiracy theories that, that don't make any sense in terms of reproducing or stabilizing a capitalist social order. And I think that's where we're at right now is we're in an era of ideological overdetermination where these ideas just sort of gain credence and they're out there and politicians embrace them and the politicians embrace them because for them, it helps them get reelected. I mean, there is a, enough of a reality to it there for them uh, that it's functional to their reelection, even if in the long run, it may be destructive of the Republican Party. OK, not only is it destructive of the Republican Party, but let's just imagine uh, a, a Republican of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, even 80s, a car dealer in Missouri, you know, bedrock of, uh, of America, Chamber of Commerce member, 
you know, wants low taxes, wants uh, restrict immigration, believes in, you know, morality uh, of his own and thinks the Republican Party will reflect that. If he's now surrounded by people who are believing that you're going to be magnetized if you uh, get the COVID vaccine or the Pizzagate conspiracy or QAnon, I mean, isn't that really disruptive to his just, you know, like, can't we all buy a car and drive it off the lot and, you know, let, let's get on with our lives? It just seems very disruptive if everybody's, you know, thinking strange thoughts. Well, it is. And those people are out there, remember, and uh, they're in a quandary uh, as to what to do. Uh, many of them are leaving the Republican Party and becoming independent. Some are even converting to moderate de Democrats. Uh, and some are arguing we have to stay inside, like Liz Cheney, we have to, although I wouldn't call her right. moderate. We have to stay inside the, the Republican Party and fight this out and win this fight uh, to bring it back to reality. So I think there's a lot of different positions, and there are certainly Republicans who don't subscribe uh, to all of this nonsense. But right now, it appears that, that they're a minority. And that could take us all the way back to where we began this whole podcast, uh, Jonathan, which yes. is the right wing has successfully mobilized the new constituency, the lumpen proletariat, the declining petite bourgeoisie, and they think they can ride that constituency to victory in perpetuity. Wow. Okay. Got it. Um, yes, it really does bring us all the way back there. Now, did Donald Trump start this, or did he just ride the wave? Is he is he the you know facilitator or the beneficiary? Yeah, I think he's the the guy who brought it to a head, but he's really the beneficiary. You know, Donald Trump is not the cause of anything. He's the effect of movements and trends that have been underway in this country for decades. And we could start uh, with the America First movement that goes back to the 1930s. Yeah. Right. And many of the America first proponents were sympathetic to, to Hitler and to Mussolini. They did not want they were opposed to the entry of America into World War Two. So when he picked up the America first, that was a long standing subterranean movement within the Republican Party that existed for a long time. You know, that included things like the old John Birch Society, right. which was kind of the right wing conspiracy theorist. Uh, don't forget the old. Uh, does it go like back to the know-nothings? Is that was that? Well, that even goes back further to the 1840s in response <laughs> oh. to the Irish immigration. There was the Lyndon LaRouche. Remember right. that? That's that right. Crew. Right. That's uh, right. right. So there's that element. Then I would also assign a great deal of responsibility to Ronald Reagan because, you know, the thing that Ronald Reagan did was he took the old kind of libertarian corporate elite that had been the backbone of the Republican Party and successfully welded it onto a new mass base of evangelicals in the South. He sort of mobilized this lower middle class, lumpen social base to come out and, and vote for the Republican Party. But throughout his presidency, Reagan always talked the talk, but never walked the walk. He always successfully kept them at arm's length. You know, he talked about abortion and family right. and all these things, but he never really gave them any substantive policies. But once they were brought into the Republican Party, they increasingly mobilized and organized themselves. They're showing up at Republican Party conventions and caucuses. And in places like Texas, they successfully took control of the Republican Party around 1992 to 1994. And that's happened in Republican parties time and time again, so that this sort of right wing that had been mobilized by Ronald Reagan eventually successfully captured the party under Donald Trump. 
Okay, how alarmed do you think the capitalist class and the, the, the corporate class is about all this movement? We saw that there was a big movement to defund the, the, the sponsors of politicians that voted to deny the election certific certification, yep. right? Um, and, and then it, there's I, been a recent series of studies. Toyota, of course, was at the forefront of this the last couple of days. Yeah, that's what they all said, but that's not what they did. They were yeah. still making contributions to these insurrectionist Republicans. Uh, Toyota got caught, and, and now they've had to backtrack. But I think there's a certain respect in which large segments of the corporate elite are going to continue to play footsies uh, with these people so long as they're in political power. They feel they have to deal with them. You know, the real question, as wow. we talked about, I think, in our la last podcast, is you know, is there a point where this old kind of corporate liberal wing of the of the corporate establishment is going to step forward and say we've had enough of this? I'm not sure they have the levers of power within the Republican Party to put a stop to it anymore. They may not. Does that mean that they go to the Democratic Party? I mean, it may not be able to be put back in the gene may not have conspiracy theories. It, may it not may be, able be to you know, it may be that they will. Uh, gravitate more to the Democratic Party, and, and there's a long-standing tradition among some of them of, of doing that. Sure. And in fact, you know, I may sound a, a little off my rocker here myself, but I do make presentations to, to corporate CEOs on occasion. You know, and two of the things I'm hearing from them now that, that just kind of shocked me off my chair is the extent to which they are reconciled to the idea of a $15 an hour minimum wage. Yeah. Uh, they just recognize that the labor market has changed where they're going to end up paying that much, whether there's a minimum yeah. wage law or not, just because the labor market is contracting. And the other thing they seem remarkably open to now, universal basic income, mm -hmm. because they know that nobody can buy their stuff if they yeah. don't have an income. And they're even talking in the range of something like 40000 a year as a mm -hmm. UBI. Now, this is admittedly up in the Northeast, mm -hmm. uh, where that corporate liberal wing tends to be concentrated. Uh, but yeah, if they're willing to move to those kinds of policies as something that they view as that restabilizes the system, but it's short of Bernie Sanders socialism, I think you could see some of them moving in that direction. Well, Clyde, I, I, my my facts are a little off, but I, I, the theory is right. I read somewhere that like Hillary Clinton, when she ran, um, her electoral base was responsible for something like 75 percent of the GDP. And, um, you know, Trump's base was responsible for like 25 percent of the GDP. I may be off by percentages, but not by a lot. So what I'm saying is that um, the economic base of this country is is still rational and voting for rational human beings. And the non real economic functioning base of this country is 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 worrying about, uh, you know, QAnon and Pizzagate. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, uh, going back to our discussion of Texas, you know, there have been a series of polls that have come out in the last week in Texas. 75% of Texans are opposed to these uh, unlicensed gun carry law that just passed. Yeah. They're same percentages opposed to uh, the the anti-abortion law that was just passed in Texas. And you could go down yeah. issue after issue after issue where the vast majority, I'm talking 67 yeah. to 75% of the public are saying, we don't want this passed. They're doing it anyway. There was I an article. I think this is like a rubber band that's going to snap and break at some point. 
Yeah, I don't disagree. There was an article in today's paper about the gleaming new Hewlett Packard uh, tower they built in Houston and how Houston was now becoming a tech center and all these brilliant scientists and all these, you know, affluent uh, techies. Code writers were now moving to Houston um, because of all this revolution, you know, in technology. And I'm like thinking, like these people aren't going to, you know, carry guns and and tell their to tell people they can't get abortions or you know think crazy conspiracy theories. You're not going to get Hewlett Packard engineers believing this nonsense. So Texas is going to have a reckoning. Yeah, in fact, if I was to use a very old sort of Marxist analogy here, drawing on Karl Kotsky. That's what you're uh, here for. <laughs> Texas, Texas has a 21st century economic and social base. It has a 19th century political and ideological superstructure. Right. At, at some point, you know, reality is going to snap this into place. It'll probably happen very quickly and, and not not so peacefully even. Right. OK, That well, that brings us another question, this peaceful thing, you know, there's a very serious violent fringe here on, on these conspiracy theory people. They're not all um, just uh, consuming media. A lot of them are armed, armed to the teeth. And yep. as we know from the, the January 6th insurrection, um, they're prepared to coordinate that act activity in a, in a violent fashion. Um, how does that go along with capitalism? Yeah. Well, as we saw, uh, they... Uh, they do coordinate themselves, and we're now finding more and more that there's a high degree of coordination and planning in the January 6th event, at least among this vanguard element that include people like the three percenters, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers group. You know, if you just take the three largest militias, the Oath Keepers, the Constitutional Sheriffs, and the three percenters in the United States, mm -hmm. they have they claim to have 60,000 members. Now, I don't doubt it. Put that in perspective, that would be the equivalent of six infantry divisions. Mm -hmm. You put that together in one or two places. I mean, you know, Joe Biden, to my dismay, made light of it and, and joked and said, yeah, well, you don't have any F-15s. Well, they didn't have any F-15s when they stormed the Capitol and came very near to decapitating the legislative branch of the government either. Mm -hmm. So I think that liberals consistently underplay this. Mm -hmm. They don't want to deal with it. These people operate with impunity, even though they openly violate and break the law on a daily basis, you know, and that that scares me more than anything. Mm -hmm. You don't need a majority to seize control by force. Oh, you, they'll never be able to seize control by force. They can do what they did. Imagine in the if they storm a state capital instead of the U.S. capital. Yeah, it'll be put down. You know that. I mean, so, you, you know, I mean, yes, they could do it, but it it'll, it'll, it will be put down. It will be put down. Right? <laughs> I, but it I, will yeah. also generate sympathizers who will come out of the way. Yeah. I mean, it's not a place we want to be. That's no. the point. It's not no. a place we want to go. Okay, so that brings us to, yes, this is civil war talk, and they're talking civil war. The right wing has been talking civil war, the conspiracy. You hear this repeatedly when uh, you know a, a Western uh, liberal uh, interviewer goes down and, and talks to some of these individuals in in the uh, Trump country. They're, the word civil war crops up very very quickly, and and they want one. They want one. Yeah, they and want they're one. trying to provoke it. Okay, boy, it looks like capitalism has let this genie grow too big for its own self good. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun to go to Disneyland uh, if you're uh, having a civil war. Very few people are gonna book a flight uh, if, if there's a real a real armed insurrection. So again, for the millionth time, what's going on? How, how Why would our capitalist society allow this to ferment at this level? Well, again, it has to do with perceptions of reality. I don't think 
liberals in particular have have seen this as as a serious problem. They dismiss it with, well, they're cuckoo, they're nuts, uh-huh. right? Uh, they're the fringe lunatics, or this. Or, you know, it's always this psychological defense mechanism where you sort of put it off to the side and say, well, we don't need to really worry about this until along came January 6th, and all of a sudden a lot of people said, whoa, this is serious business, this needs to be dealt with. But I haven't seen any movement by anyone to deal with. And unfortunately, you have lots of state legislators and governors like Governor Greg Abbott in Texas and many other states who encourage this, yes, who facilitate they are. it, who protect it. Yes. It's really shocking to a rationalist uh, that it's, it's gotten this far. It doesn't seem like a logical progression for a, a modern economy to go in this direction. No, I would agree with you. And and one hopes that at some point, you know, sanity will be restored. But at this point, I would remain somewhat skeptical, at least in the short term. Where would the sanity re- restoration come from? A Venn diagram where the um, rational Republicans come together with the rational Democrats and they sort of exclude the extremes. Would Marx say that in order to save itself, capitalism may throw out uh, AOC and uh, Rashid uh, and uh, throw out uh, the two Marjorie Republicans? Taylor Green and yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. What, thank you. That's exactly what I was thinking. Well, I think that's what Joe Biden would like to do, and I think that's his political agenda. Right now, he's had more on his plate in, in terms of short term things that he's had to deal with in terms of the economy and And the pandemic and getting money to people so they can buy food. But I think long term strategically, uh, yeah, that would be their their response is is look at this. Look at how I succeeded. Restabilize the economy. We didn't need Bernie Sanders and AOC and all those socialists to do this stuff. (laughs) And we've done it without an insurrection, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that'll be the argument going forward. Right. Got it. Okay. well, is there anything else we can we can say about you know where we are in terms of capitalism and conspiracy theories? Uh, it doesn't look like it's going away. It looks like it's getting more and more virile and crazy as the weeks and the days go by. You know, this this talk of Trump being uh, reinstated or reinaugurated in uh, August or September. People are counting on that. In fact, I did read an interview where somebody mm-hmm. says if that doesn't happen, there will be civil war. There was a quote from some some armed conspiracy theorists saying that's going to happen. Does this exist in other socialist countries? Well, you're starting to see elements of this across Western Europe, where you have similarly right-wing populist movements arising on the same social base as you find it in the United States. I think one of the differences between there and here is most of those countries have laws against hate speech. Yeah. Which gives them the ability to disrupt those channels of communication by taking down websites, in the United States, we we ban hate acts. You have to actually physically do something. We don't ban hate speech. So they can communicate and plan at will with very little legal ability of the government to interfere in that in the United yeah. States. Well, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you profusely for your insights into this really strange topic and sort of not your classic discussion of Marxism, but you shed a lot of light on where we where, where we are and where we could be. I thank you very much, Professor Clyde Barrow. Thank you. You're welcome. Listeners, thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. 
This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.